So as we read from Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, I remember when our kids were little, there was a couple of different books floating around. One was a fine wall, though. Did you guys ever look in that? As that goofy guy with the striped shirt, and you had to look through all these different images and try to find him on each page. We didn't have one of those. We had one that was a little less well-known. It was called Fine Freddy. On trips and stuff like that, the kids would use it. Sometimes they'd just get it out in the living room and flip through. Same thing. And all out all these different images on the sheet, and you're looking through to find Freddy in these different places. Well, a little bit like that is what we've been doing in the last few weeks, except he's a little bit more obvious. And that is, as we go through the Old Testament part of the Scripture, we we find Jesus. We see Jesus where he shows up, where he's where he's reflected, or where he's pictured or foreshadowed. We're not unlike the early church when we're doing this. When the church was first starting and the apostles were going around preaching, what did they have to sit down around? The Old Testament, that's all they had. The New Testament was not written yet. A little bit of time would go by before the letters that the Apostle Paul would write would start to be written, and even then it was to one church. But we can see instruction to those churches to, in some instances to make sure the letter gets to other churches. And so they would start to have these letters, and then they would start to copy these letters and get them out to other churches. But the early church didn't have anything like what we have of the New Testament. And even in our New Testament that we have in these early church writings of the apostles, a lot of it is quoted from the Old Testament. They say, look at what the Old Testament says about this. Because of that, we see Christ in this way, and this is what it means to us, and this is how we should, this is how we should worship God acceptably and how we should follow Him. And so as we've been looking through, we've been started off with the Old Testament and the writings of Moses, the first five books. And then we looked at the history books last week. And, and today as we're going through the prophets, as we look at the prophecies about Jesus Christ, uh, as we find him in the Old Testament here as well. Some people claim as many as 300 different direct prophecies about Jesus Christ as our Messiah in the Old Testament. That's a phenomenal amount. I found that uh, there was a guy that was a mathematician and he had a bunch of students underneath him. And he was looking at the prophecies about Christ surrounding Christmas. And he chose just uh, eight prophecies and said, what is the chance of anybody fulfilling just these eight prophecies. And so he and his students started hitting the calculators and finding the statistical probability of being able to fulfill all eight of those prophecies. And they found that it was a number of one, a one chance in 10 to the 17th, right? So you had like 17 zeros at the end of it. To give us a picture of what that means, because I have a hard time picturing a number with 17 zeros, I know I never deal with it in banking. I can't think of any places that <laughs> can't think of any place I deal with a number that big where I get my mind wrapped around it. Well, okay, so you take the state of Texas, two feet deep, silver dollars, mark one of the silver dollars, chuck it out in the middle there somewhere. And then you blindfold one guy, and you can walk as far as you want to into Texas, go anywhere you want to, but you only get to pick up one coin. That's the odds. And Jesus Christ fulfilled. And that's just talking about eight of them, not the whole 300 of them. It's an awesome thing. So that's what, that's what we get to look at today. We get to look at Christ in the prophets. Now, obviously, in one sermon, we're going to skim the surface. There's much more unsaid than is going to be said today. It's an area that's deep with knowledge of Jesus Christ in it. And I thought, well, how do I start focusing on this? And I thought, well, 
it just makes sense to start focusing on it with the Christmas ones a little bit. And so I think of uh, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Remember when the wise men come looking for Jesus in the New Testament and they get up to Herod and they say, well, where's, where's the one that's supposed to be born king of the Jews? Herod says, well, I don't know. Herod was referred to as the king of the Jews. And so he doesn't like the idea of a replacement. And so what does he do? He goes to the Jewish scholars and he says, where's the one that's supposed to be born king of the Jews? And they said, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. The reason they say he's supposed to be in Bethlehem is because of this prophecy in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be born ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And if we're going to look at Jesus in the prophets, now we're just looking at him mainly in the prophetic books. But you'd actually have to back way up. Some of it we've already covered in Genesis. Because the promise to Abraham would be a prophecy of Christ's coming also. That through Abraham and through his descendant, that all the world would become blessed. And then the, the promise was reiterated to Isaac and then to Jacob. And then when we get to David, that it would be through his line that someone would be sitting on his throne one day. And so there's a rich history of prophecy before we even get to the prophetic books in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, obviously, this is looking back to when Israel was delivered out of the nation of Egypt and God brought his people out. I had them as my son. I pulled them out of Egypt. But when we get to Jesus' life, we find that not only was that a deliverance for Israel out of the Egypt, but it was a picture of what God would do with his son, Jesus Christ. Herod would go through and slaughter all the children under the age of two to try to get rid of this new king of the Jews. And so Joseph would be warned about that, and he would take Mary and Jesus down into Egypt so they would be safe, and then later come back up out of there. It's just like in the Old Testament times. The nation of Israel was the family of Jacob. They go down into Egypt for safety during a famine. Later, God brings his child out of Egypt in deliverance, and God says that applies not only to my son Israel, but to my only begotten son. There's so many other things that we see in the prophets. Some of them are in pictures. I think of Jonah. Jesus said just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So Jonah was, in his mishap there, was actually a picture of what Jesus Christ would go through for us. I think of Daniel. Daniel in chapter 9, he gives the prophecy of his 70 weeks, which actually points out the time when Christ would come. And we're not, we don't have time for what we're doing today to get into all the math and everything that's up before you there. But basically, you boil it down to it. Daniel gave this prophecy, and he said, Look, from the de- decree that went forth by Artaxerxes to rebuild the temple to the coming of the Messiah would be 70 weeks minus one. So 69 weeks. Now, those weeks is in seven-year periods. A week was a seven-year period. The Jewish calendar is a little bit different than ours. Jewish calendar has a 360-day year. We have a 365-day year. And then we have our different ways of balancing those things out. But you take their calendar by his prophecy, reduce it to days. Take our calendar, reduce it to days. It comes out to 173,880 days. You know what the awesome thing is? From the day that the decree was given by Artaxerxes to rebuild the temple to the day where Christ rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, presenting himself as their king, was exactly that amount of days. And so Daniel, right to the day, would tell when the Messiah was going to come. 
Zechariah points to Christ a lot. In Zechariah 9.9 it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the full of a donkey. So predicting what Jesus would come riding into Jerusalem on. In Zechariah chapter 11, it talks about the price that would be paid for his betrayal. It says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter and the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. You know, that kind of shows up repeatedly through the Bible. Joseph, Joseph's betrayal to his brothers, 30 pieces of silver. The 30 pieces predicted here by Zechariah when Jesus is betrayed by Judas, 30 pieces of silver was the price. And just as it says in Zechariah, throw, threw, threw that 30 pieces of silver into the temple, that's exactly what Judas did. Judas, when he realized what he had done, he took those 30 pieces of silver, tried to give it back. They said, we don't want it. Your blood's on your own head. And he threw those pieces of silver into the temple and went out and hung himself. And so we see that is predicted in Christ's life as well. Zechariah also points to Christ in chapter 12. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. Now what this is referring to is actually when Christ comes back the second time. When he comes back, it says that Israel is going to see him and they're finally going to recognize him as the Messiah. And it says they will look upon him whom they have pierced. This was written way before they ever pierced him. And so it's actually predicting the fact that they would pierce him and that they would have the time when they would look upon the one that they pierced when he came back and they would finally cry out to him. There's a lot of different prophecies throughout the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And of course, the New Testament points out that when Mary was told that they were going to have this son, that he would be called Emmanuel because he would be the child of God. We just watched a video with the, with the teenagers. In this video, there's a, a university professor that has a class of students, and he asked the students, how many of you... Consider yourself to be rational people, reasonable people. And the whole class raised their hand that they considered themselves to be reasonable. And he said, let me ask a second question. How many of you people are religious people? This young lady raised her hand that she was a religious person. And he went up to her and he said, well, maybe you misunderstood my first question then. My first question is, are you reasonable? Are you rational? And he said, if I was to tell you that my, I was a product of a virgin birth, that my mother was a virgin when I was, con, when I was conceived and was brought forth into this world, would you consider me rational? Would you believe my statement that that was the case? And, you know, he went through a list of similar questions like that, but I just thought, he's missing the point. Now, obviously, if he came to me and said, I'm the product of a virgin birth, I would think, you're crazy. About anybody comes to me and tells me that, I'd think, you're crazy. That's not a rational idea. But with Jesus Christ, he's a different person. With Jesus Christ, you have all the other things that go with it. You have the shepherds that show up that say they saw a bunch of angels that came and visited them on the hillside. You have the, the guy in the temple. You have the Anna in the temple also. Simeon and Anna and the testimonies that they put forth. You watch this child grow up, and he grows up to become a man. And when he becomes a man, he does things like he turns water into wine at a wedding. 
He calms a storm while he's out on a boat just by saying the word and it becomes calm. He walks on the water and allows somebody else to walk out to him on the same water. He takes one boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish and feeds over 5,000 and then picks up more leftovers in the end than they had when they started. He cleansed lepers. He would make people that were lame walk, blind people see, deaf people hear, raised people from dead on occasion. Now, When you have somebody like that that's doing all these things right out in the public and everybody sees it. Now I'm going to think it's a little bit odd if there wasn't something special about his birth. You know, when you get to Matthew chapter 16 and Jesus asked the disciples this question, he says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples first tell him what what they've been hearing other people say, because the, the place is buzzing. Everybody's talking about Jesus. Who is he? And he said, well, some people think that you're Elijah risen again from the dead. Some people think you're John the Baptist, risen again from the dead. Some people think you're one of the other prophets, risen again from the dead. Now, none of the answers are right, but they're all amazing. Why is it that every answer that they have is somebody that's risen from the dead? It's all different people, but all the, answer, all the answers have this in common. It's somebody risen again from the dead. Why would they guess that? These people all came to the same conclusion. It's somebody that's risen again from the dead. Why? Because... The things that he's doing are not normal. We can't raise people from the dead. We can't make the blind see or the deaf hear. We can't calm the storm with a spoken word or feed tons of people with one boy's lunch. We just can't do these things. These are phenomenal things. So when you say, who is this person? He's got to be somebody extraordinary. There's got to be something about him that's... And that's exactly why the virgin birth makes total sense. I think the virgin birth is about the only way you can have all those things done. His Father is God. Now all the miracles, all the works of Christ make sense. They're just signs of who He is. And so we have Isaiah's prediction of this virgin giving birth to a child. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, now a little bit of background on the passage. If you look farther back, he's, he's talking about when they're going to be redeemed. In Isaiah, there's a lot of judgment. Israel is about to get carried off into captivity. But you know what? There's just something about the nature of God that even when He pronounces judgment... He always turns to hope. In the middle of pronouncing judgment upon Israel for their sin and that if they keep wandering over the direction they're going, they keep worshiping these other gods, that they're going to get carried off into captivity, he keeps breaking into these passages where he looks farther down the road to when they'll finally look on the one whom they have pierced and they will repent and they will be restored to God. And he starts talking about this bright future that they're going to have. And you find that in God's prophetic books of their judgment, you'll see their judgment spelled out. This is what's going to happen to you. It's going to be horrible. But then after that, (laughs) he always goes after that. But then after that, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you back. And he pronounces this blessing. And that's what we're finding in the book of Isaiah. He starts talking about, you know, the desert's going to bloom and the, and, and the place where the jackals uh, haunt right now is, is going to be fertile and, and it's just going to be great. And what is the reason? Why is it going to be great? For to us, a child is born, a son is given. You see, that's, that's the reason. What's going to cause all this greatness? Is they're being carried away into captivity or about to be? What's going to finally bring the day of greatness for the nation of Israel? It's this son that's going to be born. It's this child that is given to us. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's the one that will bring all of that. You know, right now we live in a fallen and a corrupt world, a sinful world. Christ isn't on His throne yet. We get to be ushered into the kingdom as as participants now. We get to enter under His leadership in our life now. But we're not seeing His kingdom as it's going to be. Not yet. 
And that's what this is pointing out to. One day we'll have that kingdom. We will no longer be in the sin-cursed world. Well, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now, what we see of this in Christ's earthly ministry is we see kind of that already but not yet facet that we've talked about in the past. What we see is that there was a promise with the coming of the Messiah that there would be things made right. There would be things that would flourish. There would be things that people would be healed. And so we see part of that. We don't see springs in the desert yet. That's coming when the kingdom comes. But when Christ was here, we got to see a taste of it through the healings of the different people, the sick people being made well. And and so that's what Isaiah was pointing to. When Christ comes, when the Messiah comes... Everything's going to be made right and people are going to receive healing and there's going to be springs in the desert. That's what, remember, I've talked to you a few times before about this rabbi that I had a discussion with, very brief one, uh, at an Ask the Rabbi booth down in Palm Springs. And I asked him about Isaiah 53 and Christ. And he said, oh, it's got nothing to do with it. And then he asked me this question. He says, is the desert blooming? Is Israel doing great? Is there peace around the world? No. He says, then Jesus wasn't the Christ because that's what's going to happen when he comes. But you see, what he doesn't recognize is when Christ came, all those things were starting to happen. All the healings were taking place and things were being made right. But he was rejected and he was crucified. And then he rose again and he's building his church and he's coming back. And when he comes back, you're going to see all of it. Then we'll have all of it uh, in perpetuity. It will continue. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Talking mainly about John the Baptist here. Remember when John the Baptist was out proclaiming, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand? And people said, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And John the Baptist said, no. You know who I am? I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way for the Lord. He's quoting this passage right here. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Do you remember there was a time when Jesus went into the synagogue and he read from the Word of God, and then it says that he went over and he sat down and all eyes were upon him. Well, the reason they did that is because the way they did things in the old synagogue was you would stand up in honor of God's Word and read God's Word, and then when you taught to show a distinction between your words and God's Word, you would sit down in the teacher's seat and and teach from a seat. And so when Jesus sat down and says all eyes were upon him, that's because he sat in the teacher's seat. And so he sits in the teacher's seat, having just read the verse that we just read right there, And he says, this day is this fulfilled in your ears. This is happening right now. This is is me. And this is all pointing to Christ. So throughout the prophets, there's so many different ways and things that are said that point to Christ. Well, for the rest of our time, I would like to turn to a passage that is very much ignored. And that is Isaiah chapter 53. Now, when I say it's very ignored, you say, wait a minute, I know about that. I know that passage. I know you do. It's not ignored by us. You know who it's ignored by? The Jewish community. In fact, it was interesting. I read a couple articles uh, this week by uh, a guy in uh, Jews for Jesus. 
Jews for Jesus is a messianic group. It's a, it's a group of Jewish people that try to reach other Jewish people for Jesus Christ. They recognize that Jesus is their Messiah, and they have a great ministry reaching out to other Jewish people, trying to convince them that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And I found it very interesting learning from this guy's Jewish background a little bit. Because he said, when you go into like Jerusalem and you interview Jewish people on the streets, he says, most of the people, if you ask them, who is Isaiah 53 about? They don't know. He says, some people will give you something that they've heard somewhere. Most of them have never even read it. Now, it's interesting. He says, because they have kind of a, a calendar of the readings that they read through during the course of the year. And he says, Isaiah 53 is omitted. It's, it's not there. They take it out. They don't read it. And when you ask why, and then apparently this guy that wrote the article has had some, uh, was trained in a school to train rabbis and stuff, for at least for a time. He said, you know what? In our rabbi training, you don't talk about it. And we don't read it in the synagogues. And he says, the reason that is given is because, well, the Christians make such a big deal about it, pointing it out to Jesus. We don't want them to have the opportunity to point out that, look, this is about Jesus. He said, but you know what the interesting thing is? These aren't places where there's Christians. There's no Christians at the rabbi training school. He said, there's no Christians in our synagogues where we read it. He said, the fact of the matter is, he said, when I picked it up and read it for the first time, he was a Jewish person, not wanting it to be about Jesus at all. And he said, I read through it and I couldn't believe how much it looked like it was about Jesus, how much it was about the Messiah. Well, what they do today is they try to tell you, oh, that passage isn't about the Messiah at all. But if you look at all their, uh, the testimony of their old rabbis back before the time of Christ, the testimony of the old rabbis before the time of Christ consistently pointed to Isaiah 53 and said, this is about the Messiah. And then Christ came, and then after Christ died on the cross, rose again from the dead, Isaiah 53 was omitted from the readings, and it just gets ignored. They, don't, just don't, they just don't deal with it. Finally, a guy about a thousand years after Christ, uh, the book of Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ, Finally, a guy about a thousand years after Christ, a, a rabbi, his name starts with an R, I can't remember what it was, Rashi or something like that. This rabbi said, Isaiah 53 is not about Christ. It's not about the Messiah. It's about the nation of Israel as a whole. But the problem is, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Because it talks about the one who comes and dies for the sins of Israel. And so how can Israel die for the sins of Israel? And so it doesn't make any sense at all that this would refer to the nation of Israel as a whole. So some people said, well, maybe, it was, maybe it's about Isaiah himself. Isaiah wasn't pierced. Isaiah didn't die for the sins of Israel either. And not only that, but you'd have to resurrect again from the dead. You have to be alive again at the end. He didn't do that either. Uh, well, maybe it was a contemporary of Isaiah. There's nobody. There's, there's nobody that fits this bill but Jesus Christ. And it's so plain. It's unmistakable. And so what do they do? They just skip it. Hope nobody else reads it. And just kind of sail on. So Isaiah 53, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like the root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Remember Jesus when he was before Pilate. Pilate told him, aren't you going to answer? Don't you realize that I have the power to put you to death or to let you live? And then Jesus finally broke the silence and he said, you wouldn't have the power to do anything if it wasn't given to you from God. And that was it. He didn't say anything in his own defense. He didn't try to get set free or proclaim his own innocence because he was doing just like a lamb before its ears is silent. He was there for a purpose as that lamb to be sacrificed on our account. And so he just silently went to the cross. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Remember, Pilate said at least three different times before handing him over to be crucified, I don't find anything wrong with this man. And he said that he knew it was because of envy of the Jews that he was handing them over or that they wanted him to put, be put to death. It also says that he made, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Jesus was crucified between two thieves, and then he was taken by Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man and respectable man, and buried in his own brand new tomb that he had for his family. And so he fulfilled that prophecy as well. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. So we have life again after death. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So as we look at this passage in Isaiah 53, we want to point out four different things real quickly that it emphasizes that Christ has done and is doing. The first one is a substitutionary death. Repeatedly, over and over and over, it says, by his wounds we are healed. He, he suffered for us. He, he took our penalty upon himself. It's by his stripes, by his wounds that we're healed, that he would die for our sins. And that's what it points to repeatedly down through there. Christ died as a substitute for our sins. Secondly, we also see a victorious life. Toward the end, it talks about him seeing his offspring and being satisfied. In verse 10, Yet it is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, so after he's paid our price, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. So he will continue to live. And that's what Jesus Christ died on the cross and then rose again from the dead to experience both of those things. And then also it points out he, an imputed righteousness. Verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And you know, you can't beat a deal like that. When I look at my relationship to Jesus Christ and what I got out of the deal, what did he get? He got my sin. That's why he was on the cross. So I get to make a trade. He gets my sin. I get his righteousness. That is, that, is just, that is just incredible. But that's exactly what happens. His righteousness is accounted to our, credited to our account. We get to be righteous before him. And then 
Lastly, in ongoing ministry, where is, where is Jesus Christ right now? The Bible teaches in the New Testament that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's there to do one thing, make intercession for us. In other words, he's, he's there representing us before the Father. He's there. He's got our back. He's, he's on our side. And that's what Jesus is doing on our behalf. He has a current ministry right now. He already went to the cross. He's done that once. It's over. He rose again from the dead. Again, once. It's over. But now that he's alive, he's still at the side of the Father. He's pleading your case. He's pleading my case. He's standing there on our behalf. You know, as we look through this passage, as I said, it couldn't be Israel. The nation of Israel can't die for the sins of Israel, resurrect again to see the satisfaction of that and be at the right hand of God making intercession for Israel. None of that makes sense. There's nobody else that fits the bill for it either. The only person that it could be is Jesus Christ. And that's what He's accomplishing on our behalf. So we look through the prophets. The prophets proclaim to us the coming of this one, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're, that's what we're celebrating this Christmas season. As we see Christ in the Old Testament and all the predictions it showed so that we would be ready for His coming. And you know what? That's one of the things that, that's my biggest goal in this Christmas season. There's a lot of things that I want to do. I want to enjoy time with my family. And I want to do some Christmassy kind of things. I like the customs. But I want all of it to do this one thing. is make me a little more ready for Jesus Christ. To see Him a little more clearly.